What's going on, everybody? Welcome to a new episode of The Libertarian Perspective, where we talk about today's issues from a libertarian's perspective. Shockingly enough, it's in the name of this podcast, but we're going to keep on going. My name is Chris Sost, and I welcome you. So today, I really wanted to talk about kind of the Build Back Better or Build Back Whatever plan, uh, as well as what we're all experiencing right now, which is a decently high amount of price inflation. Um, You've felt it at the pumps. You feel it in your utility bills. uh, You feel it at the grocery store. You feel it damn near everywhere you go as a consumer. It's really hard not to. Now, there's a bunch of people on the left and the right. The right likes to be like, labor shortages, rah, rah, rah. Um, And people on the left just like to say that, well, to be quite frank, I I don't listen to a whole lot of what the left has to say, but they are rather dismissive of inflation, um, which you should never be. You should never be dismissive of something that is really, really affecting your constituents. Um, You know, we, we like to, we like to make promises to people as politicians. Um, Oh, we're going to do this for you. We're going to do that for you. We're going to give you this. We're going to give you that. Well, that shit backfires when things like inflation get in your way to where even the best case scenario, you know, the best economists, and I'm going to get into this article that I, that I picked out from uh, the New York times where even the best case scenario states as in, you know, the administration went out and found its economists to, to portray why this wouldn't be that bad is Even at the best case scenario, they say, quote, well, let me just quote this article. A host of economists and independent analysis have concluded that the bill is not economic stimulus and that it will not pump enough money into consumer pocketbooks next year to raise prices more than a modest amount. So even, even the best, most optimistic way to view this bill is that it will still raise prices next year. Even the, but they, they spin it as a modest amount. Well, if you increase prices, a quote unquote modest amount on top of prices that are already increased, that still is a net negative to the average consumer. In particular, people in the lower middle to lower income sector of, of this country, right? Like somebody who's making $300,000 a year per se, or 400,000 or $100,000 a year, or even $70,000 a year, they are, uh, scrap the 70,000, but let's just stick with 100,000, right? 100,000 and above. Are they actually feeling, feeling the effects of inflation? I mean, technically, yes, but it is what it is, right? Like what they're essentially doing is, is not saving as much. Um, but once you get into that 50, 60, 20, 30, 40, you know, $1,000 a year range, this modest amount of inflation or price uh, raises in price has a bigger fucking effect on these people. There's, there's no getting around that, right? But, but what these economists will turn around and say is, is, well, the net benefit to the country as a whole. So it's like, ah. 
So, so what you're hoping, because all this, anytime you see a bill proposed by any, any, any party, doesn't matter what party it is in Congress, they always do this 10 year bullshit plan. And the reason why I call it bullshit is because that plan will never make it 10 years. Like we will legit have two presidential elections during that quote unquote bills time of spending. And we'll have what? At least four congressional elections while that bill is, is, is in existence or is, is being paid for, if you will, or is sending out money or spending money. You know, so this whole, this whole notion that, you know, oh, this bill is paid for, that is under a really terrible assumption. And, and it's why I really hate things like, like uh, universal life policies, particularly the variable universal life policies, is because they all create these projections, right? That's all they can do is project what they'll be able to collect in, well, for in, you know, in terms of legislation, whenever they talk about, oh, we'll raise, we'll raise taxes to pay for this bill. It's like, okay, so let's get a little historical perspective here for a second um, and just look back, right? Which is, what bill, what piece of legislation, what essentially what legislation has ever happened that has collected the amount of money that it said it was going to collect? Now, I want you to go out and I want you to Google this because I have not found a single piece of legislation that has ever been enacted by Congress that has proclaimed that it will generate X amount in government revenue and actually makes good on, on that promise. And, and, and it's really simple why this doesn't happen, why it's always wrong. Because the private sector has always and will always be five steps ahead of the government. So yes, the government may in fact, when they, let's just say they, they pass Build Back Better, right? And they have all these tax increases projected. Well, you know what the private sector does because the private sector is not stupid is instead of instead of trying to fight legislation, that shit doesn't it doesn't make any sense. It's actually ROI negative. So what people of of good means of exceptional means if you want to, you know, put it that way, people that are well off, what they do is they they pay accountants and tax uh, tax consultants and a whole host of other people that are really good with money and taxes. And they say, look, we're going to give you whatever amount in order to have these tax increases not affect us. And guess what? Those people deliver every single fucking time. Well, you know, if you restructure your company to this and if you do this and this and this, you will avoid the increase in taxes. Great. It is far cheaper, turns out, right? And far smarter, it turns out, to listen to people in the private sector than it is to listen to people in government. So now that I've gone down this rabbit hole, we're going to actually dig into this, this article, which the name of the article is The Path Ahead for Biden, Overcome Mansions and in, in Inflation Fears. Again, You'll, you can find economists just like you can find statistics to prove anything that you want. That, 
that is well known and it's well documented. You can you can make statistics and you can make you can find economists to back up those statistics to prove anything that you wish. That's the beauty of economics and statistics. But apparently, uh, last week, at the end of the week, or even over the weekend, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia effectively killed President Biden's signature domestic uh, policy bill in its current form on Sunday, saying it w- saying he was convinced the spending and tax cuts in the $2.2 trillion legislation will exacerbate already hot inflation. fair fear. Um, But the economists that the administration is using as a way to sell its bill strongly suggest that Mr. Manchin is wrong. However, ironically enough, they actually admit that he's right. (laughs) A host of economists, like I said before, a host of economists and independent analysis have concluded that the bill is not economic stimulus, and that it will not pump enough money into consumers' pocketbooks next year to raise prices more than a modest amount. So here's here's the sad part, right? This is this is an article actually written in favor of the administration's plan. But even they admit that it will at least raise the prices a modest amount next year, which if we go back up to the first paragraph or the first sentence or two of this article, <laughs> he, Joe Manchin said he was convinced that the spending and tax cuts in the $2.2 trillion legislation will exacerbate already hot inflation. Based off of literally the next two sentences, he is correct. Based off of the economic evidence, Remember, he didn't say that it was going to lead to hyperinflation. He didn't say that it was going to blow inflation out of the water. He just simply stated that it will exacerbate already hot inflation. So any increase in prices next year means his fear is correct. And the economists that are here to sell this bill even admit that even though they feel that this bill will not pump enough money into consumers' pocketbooks next year to raise prices more than a modest amount. That's their best case scenario. The reason has to do with the pace at which the bill spends money and how much money or how much it raises through tax increases that are intended to pay for that spending. The legislation spends funds over a decade, allowing the taxes... It raises on wealthy Americans and businesses, which will siphon money out of the economy to help counteract the boost from spending and taxes. Again, the promise, the the problem with this is that they've never been right on the amount of money that these tax increases will collect over time. The, the close, I, I would actually argue, the closest that they've ever gotten is year one. And again, that's because we're, I, I, wealthy Americans, I want to make sure we, we highlight the people that they highlight in this, uh, in this article, wealthy Americans and businesses within a year 
will have already gotten themselves out of a position of being, of being taxed more. Again, you'll hit them the first year. But second year, moving forward, all projections will be wildly off. And again, it's because the private sector moves a lot faster than government. And that's because individuals are making choices, right? And we can just, we can make choices on the fly. The government, I mean, just look at their fucking schedule, let alone the infighting. But look at the schedule, you know what I mean? Like these, these folks don't even spend that much time in Washington, D.C., so they can't possibly keep up with the private sector. It's literally impossible. They would actually have to go to work every day of the year to even remotely come close. Um, but let's get let's dig into this article a little bit further because I really do want to talk about inflation because it really is a topic that should be talked about more so that people are better informed on the roots of inflation. So getting back into this, uh, it says the bill also does not provide the type of direct stimulus included in the $1.9 trillion pandemic package Mr. Biden signed in March and which Mr. Manchin supported. But again, he had good reasons. Some of its provisions would give money directly to people like continued, like a continued expanded uh, child tax credit, but others would fund programs that would take time to ramp up like universal pre-kindergarten. Uh, economists say the net result is likely to be at most a tenth of a percentage point or two increase in the inflation rate. So again, Joe Manchin, going back, Joe Manchin said that he fears that this bill will exacerbate already hot inflation. Like we're all, as in we're already experiencing it. And then these, these economists actually prove that, yes, that technically will happen. So even if it's only, uh, you know, two, right? A percentage point or two. That's huge. Like, that's huge. For the consumer out there who's already struggling, one to two percentage points is, is no laughing matter. The article continues to go on. It says, for months, Mr. Manchin has warned the president and congressional leaders that he was uncomfortable with the breedeth of what had become a 2.2... I, I do believe the New York Times spelled something wrong there, but whatever. Uh, what it had become a $2.2 trillion bill to fight climate change, continue monthly checks to parents, establish universal pre-kindergarten and invest in a wide range of spending and tax cuts targeting childcare, affordable housing, home health care, and more. He has cited both the risks of inflation and his fear that the package could further balloon the federal budget deficit, saying several programs that are now estimated to end in a few years would likely be made permanent. Over the past week, he insisted that the bill shrink to fit the framework of less than $2 trillion that Mr. Biden this fall and that, crucially, the legislation not use budget gimmicks to artificially lower the bill's effect on the budget deficit. 
Now, ironically enough, I want to go back. I want to circle back here. Um, the uh, the current uh, press secretary circles back all the time, so I, I would like to circle back. I want to circle back to taxes, right? And more importantly, tax increases and how the quote-unquote wealthy Americans and businesses do such a good job of paying low uh, taxes. Does anybody actually think for even a millisecond that the private sector will, will not be able to essentially get their clients out of these tax increases? So basically what Joe Manchin's actually admitting here is that he does not believe that the tax increases will actually pay for this bill. And he's got a pretty good reason why, which is it never has before. Like show a bill that's paid for itself. Doesn't doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. And see, this is where I wish the administration would just become honest, right? So they're trying to play two sides of the fence here. They're trying to say, oh, well, this isn't, this isn't adding to the budget, isn't adding to the deficit. If you have, and I would point it out like this, if you have any spending in the bill in year two, it will start adding to the deficit. And again, it's always in that year two phase that the amount of money they projected that they would collect always starts to decline. And it will continue to decline into the future. So yes, this bill will in fact not pay for itself. And the reason why is it barely net pays for itself based off of... <laughs> the most favorable of projections by the administration. So here we are, right? We have the Build Back Better plan, which here's the crazy thing, right? As a libertarian, there's a lot of things in the bill that I think that we should really have a discussion around that would be a net benefit to the country. I really do. You know, I, I would love to see uh, a revamp of our education system. Um, what we're what we've been finding out over the past fifty years is that putting more money into education has not yielded better results. That's a fact. It's an indisputable fact. we We have continued to spend more per pupil. but we don't we don't spend the most per pupil in the world, but but we we actually spend fifth. I think we're fifth in the world. And, and, and spending per pupil. But yet, we're 37th in fucking math. Right? So, so here's my thing, right? If, if more money actually meant a better education, then we would be at least fifth in mathematics. We would at least be 10th in ma- mathematics. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> if we spend the fifth most amount of money in the world on education per pupil, then I expect the results of that to be at least we're in the top 10 in outcomes. And the reality is, 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 is that's not the case. So, so fixing things like education is, is not a, it's not a money issue. Yeah. It's, it's a structural issue. Uh, what else? Uh, child, child daycare. This one, I, I am a little, mm, 
This one's difficult, right? So as a libertarian, I would say that childcare is, is a very important aspect of, you know, of the world that we live in today, which is the vast majority of households have two parents, two working parents. Um, so childcare is an issue. But the question is, is government throwing money at it? Is that actually going to fix anything? Is it actually going to fix anything? So, so that's, that's, where, that's where me and, and, and Democrats on a lot of social issues will, will disagree, which is, okay, you have this great idea. It is rooted in noble intentions. Now we have to start digging into the facts and we need to start figuring out whether these noble intentions are going to yield the results that we are looking for. And are there alternatives that achieve the same results? See, this is the world that we live in right now. You know, it's real easy to turn around and be like, oh, we're going we're gonna to create this program. We're going to do this. We're going to eliminate this. But, but what's the reality? That's what I want to know, right? Like, how does this translate out? More importantly, are there, are there other ways of achieving the results that we would like to see without spending a gross amount of money. You know, when, when I look at, at something like education, right? Pre-K or childcare for that matter. My, my biggest question is, is why for the most part has the, the private sector not paid for it? Like, like actual, right? So, and, and the reason why I say that is because when you look to the private sector, you, and, you, and you start looking at net benefits, you will see, and we are seeing, various private sectors doing certain things. So we've been seeing the private sector uh, subsidizing uh, secondary education or college or trade school, whatever, right? Like we're already seeing that. We've been seeing that for over a decade now. And it's becoming more popular. So what that tells me is that the initial, the initial companies that started doing that saw the net benefit and probably paid a, a, probably a small premium to, to, to go out on this venture, right? And then they figured out how to optimize it. So the private sector is really, really motivated to optimize anything that they get themselves into. Now, the reason why I say that is because the government is not. So when the private sector starts saying things like, we'll provide secondary education, we'll, we'll subsidize it, we'll pay for it, whatever, whatever however you want to say it. They actually, have a, they actually have an incentive to get the price of that down as far as possible because they're paying for it. They're on the hook for it. They, they, don't have, they don't have taxpayers that they can just fucking turn around and with the stroke of a pen uh, take money from with, with no real-world repercussions. So in the, in the private sector, whenever they offer a benefit, they are always incentivized to optimize that benefit to cost them the least amount of money. The government has never and will never do that. 
you know, it's not like it's it's not like we're we're gonna create you know this child this child care program, right? And then optimize it in the future for it to cost less. Why? Because that's not like that doesn't get people votes in Congress. That's a to be point blank. It doesn't it it, it doesn't get them any votes, right? There's no votes to be had by turning around and saying, hey, we created this child care program. And by the way, in year four of offering it, we've been able to, 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 to net save, you know, 18.6% of the expense. We've never fucking heard that in the history of Congress. So to even remotely suggest that that would happen now is just ignoring all historical data. Again, that does not mean that a program centered around providing child care for working parents is not a good idea. It's a fucking fantastic idea. The question will always become, how do we best implement it and optimize it? And I feel like this is, this is where we, we lose so many people because folks that generally lean towards the right will be like, oh, if we can't do it, then we shouldn't even talk about it. And then you, we, have, we have people who are more progressive or progressive leaning turn around and say, we're just going to do it and then we'll figure it out later. So, so that's, that, that, that's where we sit as a country on, on, on pretty much every issue, which is we're going to fuck around and find out or since I can't see a path to making this happen, I'm just going to outright... Uh, table it, if you will, in general, and just be like, we can't do it. And that's, that's really what's holding us back as a society, right? That's what's holding us back from addressing inflation. That's, that's, that's holding us back from addressing a whole host of issues, which is Congress has never been more divided, or perhaps we haven't, we haven't had a Congress this divided since the Civil War. We haven't. We have people standing on both sides in very militant fashion. And it, it's done nothing to progress this country as a whole. Like there are things we should be talking about. We should be talking about universal pre-K. We should be talking about, you know, ways to modify the, the, chi the child tax credit. Um, we should be talking about uh, you know, child, child care moving into the future. Like these are, these are conversations that we should be having as, as people, as, as a, as a society, because I fundamentally believe there is a way for there to be a net positive for, you know, universal pre-K or, or things of that nature. The, the thing that I question as a libertarian is, is, is the government the proper vehicle uh, to get us where we want to go? Now, ironically enough, I've always given the folks, uh, let's give a, a really good example of, of activism working um, in, in the real world, which is there's been a quote-unquote fight for 15 for years now. I, I remember we had a, what, Occupy Wall Street was a, was a thing. Um, 
And then, you know, yeah, the fight for 15 has been a thing. And guess what? These folks have pushed the private sector to figure out ways to incorporate whatever is the fight, whatever is being discussed or advocated. How, how, do, we, how do we institute this in a way that costs us the least amount of money? And guess what? To their credit, the folks for Fight for 15, guess what? They have, they, they've achieved their actual goal, and I would, be, I would actually be happy as hell if I, if I were them today. And, and here's why. Because you have major, and I mean major companies, coming out and, and being like, yeah, we're paying people $15 plus an hour starting pay or minimum pay. So it's worked. And it's actually worked way better than if they actually would have gotten the government to do this. So, so I, am, I am very, very much pro-activist, even if I don't agree with you, because I still fundamentally believe that being an activist and, and pushing the private sector to make changes is fundamentally the best way that we as a society can see change. Because the government has no ability to move fast. It has no ability to adjust with economic conditions. No shot. The, the, the way our political system is set up in this country, there's no shot that the government stands a chance in keeping up with the free market. There's, it's 0% chance. However, that does not mean that we don't have these conversations regarding things like inflation or uh, child, child care, child care costs, or Medicare, or... Um, what else did I just, what else did I ramble off? Uh, Pre-K, right? We need to have these conversations. And we need to, to listen to each other. Like actually listen and don't just fucking label people. Again, I can always tell when I engage with a person with how much they watch uh, the news. You can always tell. It's, it's honestly, once you've actually stopped watching the news, it, you can see it like it's clear as day, how much people watch the news because it's like, you basically spent the last 15 minutes saying what I could have heard three months ago on CNN or Fox news, whatever, you know, input the, the, the news agency, but you can tell. It's glaring, right? Because we're not having conversations where we are turning around and critically thinking about our position. And I, feel, I, I still feel as though this is where libertarians have the advantage in the political arena because we are actually constantly, <laughs> we are constantly in conflict in politics, in our political views. Because as much as the right would like to claim libertarianism, the right has no claim on libertarianism. There's a lot that the right does that is very much against the average libertarian. You know, it was if, if you want to associate, right, if we want to associate libertarianism with the right, then you, you have to be, you have to turn around and say that it was libertarians that brought conservatives 
to where we are today in terms of position on gay marriage. Because as a libertarian, I, I just fundamentally just don't give a shit who marries who. Like that really doesn't matter, right? Like it shouldn't matter, especially in terms of the government. Like personal positions are personal positions, but the government. Anyways, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. That's going to be for a whole nother uh, podcast. But, but we really should be having conversations around these issues in a more open manner, as in we should be saying, all right, we, I, I, I fundamentally believe that as a society, we, we all believe that universal pre-K is a good thing and that there's no malice amongst the people bringing it to the table to, to have a conversation about. There's no malice behind their intent. So if we all can, can coalesce around the idea that universal pre-K would be a net positive for society, where we're going to disagree and that we should disagree is how to make it happen. But, but as, as we're having the fight, as we're having the debate on how we, how we get whatever, we should constantly remember that we're all on the same side. We're all looking to accomplish the same goal. Whatever it is we're talking about, universal pre-K. Uh, what else? Um, universal pre-K. Um, I've already listed everything. Um, uh, child, child care. Uh, honestly, so this whole child tax credit thing, I do want to talk about this since it was part of the Build Back Better uh, program. I fundamentally believe, just based off of my experiences uh, in sales, that the child tax credit should always be given per month. Always. Like that should have been a thing forever now. We should have been giving the child tax credit monthly since the beginning, since it was feasible. So like direct deposit kind of shit. And, 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 and I, I say that mainly because the money will actually be spent a little bit more efficient, efficiently. So I, so here's my thought process on that. When you hand a parent of two kids a $7,000 check, what are they, like, like, what are they going to do with that, right? When you hand somebody $7,000 cash, how are they going to spend it? Well, since they have a huge clip of money, they have the ability to buy things that they would otherwise not be able to buy if they were simply handed $600 a month. So, so I like the idea of, of, a, of a child tax credit where we turn around and we give people the money monthly rather than all at once at the end of the year. Again, it just goes a little bit further in ensuring that the money is spent a, a little bit better at least. Um, but I actually wanna do a whole episode on, on, on each of these topics. Again, because I, I think that there's a lot of places where, where, we could, where we could come together and there could be general consensus on, on various issues. But I, I wanna close this, this episode uh, by pointing out one thing, which is these bills that are, that are being 
introduced like $2.2 trillion uh, build back better plan or the $1.9 trillion pandemic relief plan or the $2.2 trillion that was created last year for pandemic relief. Like these bills are fucking massive. They're massive. And there's, there's no shot that anybody in Congress is actually reading them. No shot, right? There's no, there's about a 0% chance that anybody reads these massive bills. And it's just because of how fast they eventually get passed, right? You know, we spend months bickering over, over the details of the plan. And then it's like, then we have to turn around and be like, oh, you know, so we are going to pass this huge bill uh, tomorrow night. And it's like, so wait a minute, we just spent six months discussing the, the framework. Like that's all we're discussing, like the framework and some of the details and each parts of the framework. And then, then we're just going to give it out to these people to write the legislation. And then we're going to have like two hours to read a 4,000 page bill. Right. Who's reading that? Fucking nobody. <laughs> so I, I am very much pro 100 page or less bills. And guess what? If that means that we have to pass a string of bills in order to get something done, then guess what? At 100 pages, I feel fairly confident that c- congressional members and their staff can read the entirety of the bill. That people, the common folk, you know, you and I will be able to read the bill and be able to turn around and say whether we support it or we're against it. But right now, the vast majority of our society, and it, it's, it's, very show, it's very telling, not showing, very telling, um, is, is you get people and they rely on, on a news agency, on a news network, to dice, decipher the bill and then essentially give them their opinion on the bill. Like that's where we're at. And, and no, there's, there's, there's no one side that is better or worse at doing it. They're all terrible. All of them fail. Fox News fail. CNN fail. MSNBC failed. Uh, ABC, NBC failed, failed, failed. All of them. Because they all have an agenda. And it's one of the reasons why I created this podcast. It's because, to be quite frank, I don't give a shit whether you think libertarian, the libertarian perspective is the right one, right? The whole idea is that we're going to talk about this from a libertarian's perspective. And we're going to talk about a whole range of issues, current events, from a libertarian's perspective. Because my my path to becoming libertarian was I was hardcore uh, progressive. And then sitting amongst people who thought differently than me for years on end, we all changed our views over time. But we all remembered, or we all kept in mind, if you will, that at the end of the day, we're still friends. We're still family. And that should never change regardless of the other person's political views or views on any particular issue. That's what this podcast is all about. 
we're going to talk about things. And at the end of the day, we're still all Americans. And I will always respect you as that. No, no political view that you could have will ever change the respect I have for you as an American. I, I, will, I, will, I will disagree greatly on, on various issues. But at the end of the day, I still got respect for you as an American. Because that's what America's all about. You know, we're the, we're the most diverse country on the planet. We, we bring people in from all walks of life in this country. We, for, the, for all intents and purposes, have taken a mixture of the world's rejects and the world's best. And we've created this melting pot here. That's, what I, that's, that's the way I view America. We're a melting pot, like it or not. We're the most diverse country on the planet. And guess what? With that diversity comes diversity of thought. And it's what makes America so great is we, we all have the ability to think whatever we want to think. And despite our disagreements, we can still look at each other and say, you know what? At the end of the day, at least we're still American. And to that, I raise my glass or I take off my hat because man, if, if we ever lose, if we ever lose that, it's a wrap. The experiment will be done. We have to be able to disagree. We have to, we can't be as diverse as we are, and we can't be as diverse as we will be in the future and not respect disagreements on the issues. And sadly, congr congressional members can't point out any that, that, that don't play this game. And presidents... over the past 20 years, at least, have done nothing but drive division. You know, it's really sad, right? It's really, really sad that it, it took September 11th, 2001 for all of us to fly an American flag outside, to fly an American flag on our vehicle as we drive around or put on vinyl stickers saying, United We Stand. It took 20 people killing thousands for us to come together. Think about that. Twenty people killing thousands for all of us to come together. 
fast forward to today, we're, we're as divided now as we were at the Civil War period. And it's because we can't see. We can't see the greatest thing that we all have in common. It's, it's like we're, we're all out there, right, to, to feel superior in some type of way. Intellectually, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, we feel empowered when we foot, should feel ashamed when, when we just throw labels at people. When we, when we just label people something. Even, they, they might not even actually be that, right? But it's... We're just so intellectually lazy that we just throw a label on them. You're a racist. You're a socialist. You're a communist. It's no wonder that in 2021, why words like racism, socialism, and communism have no meaning anymore. Has no meaning. You know, back when I was growing up as a kid, boy, when you got called a racist, that really meant something, and it fucking stuck. Fast forward to today, and that term has been used so many times, way out of context, that nobody gives a fuck about it anymore. You call somebody a, a, a racist today, they laugh. And who's actually laughing are the actual people that are racist. Because they've gotten society as a whole to turn around and use the term so much that it literally has no more meaning. And it's happening right now on the right with socialism and communism. You can throw these terms at people, but at the end of the day, it actually doesn't mean anything. You know, I, I see politicians calling people names, using labels. And it's all for political gain. 100% political gain. They're drunk on power, folks. The media is drunk on power. And you keep pouring them up. Shot after shot after shot. My only question is, is when is everybody going to wake up? When is everybody going to stop using labels and just start talking about the issues themselves without labels? This country has achieved great things in a good way and through what we now know as bad ways. Accept it. Because no matter what, at the end of the day, whether our past is good or bad, we live in the greatest country to have ever existed on God's green earth. We've had many disagreements over the years. We've righted a lot of wrongs. And we've grown as a country. We've grown because at the end of the day, the United States is still the beacon of hope in this world. 
Despite what you see on TV, we still have more people trying to come here than any other country on Earth. And we should be more accepting of people who want to come here. We should be. Will we be? That's the question. And that's the question we have yet to answer. So thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. I really appreciate you coming on this journey. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, um, if you have the ability to comment uh, directly on this episode, I, I implore you to do so. And if not, you can always head over to the Libertarian Perspective Facebook page and, and, and leave a shout-out comment there, as I'm sure uh, as long as you do it on a mobile device, you should be able to go to the podcast section and comment directly on the podcast episode. Again, thank you guys so much, and I look forward to speaking with you in the future again.